0: For your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, oh speak. For your servants are listening. It's one thing to ask God to speak, but are are you ready to listen? Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Sister Jackie and our music ministry for leading us. Thank you, Brother McGee, for leading us in prayer and preparing our hearts uh, that we may hear from the Lord this morning. Amen. Welcome to this local body of Christ, this church gathered at Forest Baptist. So glad that you're with us today, either in person or via a live stream. And I pray that you will indeed hear the Lord speak, and that He would speak a word of encouragement, a word of conviction, a word of liberation that he would set the captives free so we can worship him in the spirit and in truth. Amen? Amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me to Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew, the 19th chapter, as we're continuing in our study through the gospel of Matthew. And, you know, one of the benefits of preaching through an entire book of the Bible. Um, y'all don't have to stand up yet, I'm sorry. Just want to get you there. Uh, but one of the benefits of preaching through an entire book of the Bible is the journey that we have the privilege to, to walk on, right? As we go through these narratives of Scripture from the beginning to end, we see more nuances. There, there's, there's one thing to just come to a particular uh, Scripture, and not see it in its complete context, uh, which is still good, but to be able to go through an entire book of the Bible, to see the nuances, to see how the narrative travels this way and travels that way, it's, it's, it's a source of encouragement, and it keeps the journey fresh. You know, when I'm thinking about journeying through the Bible, I, I think back to uh, when, uh, when the children were young, we started to purchase a membership to the Louisville Zoo, every single year and we will find ourselves going multiple times over and over again uh, to the same place right Uh, along the same path and even right now we've been there so much i can kind of mentally walk the path you know you come through you park you come through the the gates and you head to the left and as you head to the left you see that uh, there's the merry-go-round and you come around the corner and then the rhino is right there on the right. And then you go a little bit more, then the giraffes are right there. You come around the corner, then the elephants and you look past the elephants straight over. And then like the tigers are like, I got it mapped out of my head. I know the journey. But yet and still, even though we've been there so many times, part of the joy is just the journey and being with one another and even though we've been there so many times, there's always something new that jumps out at us. And when I'm thinking about the journey too, not only do we see these things jumping out at us that we may have not noticed before, but we think about like the hills and, and after you come past the gorilla kingdom, you start going down the hill and then there's the, uh, I think that's the, the leopards and then you go and then you're coming around a uh, polar bear uh, alley and then the seals are right there. And then we always, always, the snack's right there, so we always stop there and get some snacks. But, but you're going down, but then you come around and you go past the snow leopard, and on the right-hand side there's the wolves, but th- that trail that goes up the side of the, the pen for the wolves, it, it's this steep incline. Y'all yeah, know what I'm talking about, don't y'all? <laughs> y'all yeah, know what I'm talking about. It's that steep incline, and you're like, man, everything's, everything's been easy so far, but I get to this, this hill, you get to the top of the hill, you kind of breathe like, Man, I ain't know I was that out of shape. You're breathing hard because that, that hill is challenging, right? You know, it's the same way with scriptures. You're coming through corners, you're going up and down, you're seeing things, but then you come to those hills, those parts that you got to go up. That's challenging. It's difficult. And when you get to the top or to the other side, you feel like you may be out of wind. But the Lord is taking you on a journey for his glory, but also for your good. And we find ourselves in one of those heal moments of Scripture this morning. Last week, we looked at chapter 18 and what Jesus had to say about forgiveness. Uh, But then this week, we move into chapter 19, so on the heels of forgiveness, now we're in chapter 19, and Jesus now sets his sight on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Now remember, Jesus, he briefly touched upon this in, Mar- in uh, Matthew, the fifth chapter, during the Sermon on the Mount. And he, and he gave uh, some specific instructions on divorce and remarriage. But as we come to the text this morning, there in Matthew, the fifth chapter, it, it, it was a small text, but now there's, this is a more expansive study on that subject. So today, we'll reflect on this teaching uh, from Jesus as he is touching on divorce, marriage, remarriage, and singleness. Like I said, it's more expansive. So now, if you would, Matthew, the 19th chapter, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. So if you are able... May we all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. This is the word, the words of Christ. May his words transform us from the inside out this morning. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and healed And he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and and to send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. May the Lord have a blessing to the reading of His Word, you may be seated this morning. And as the Lord has so choosen, chosen to bring us to this text, may we be faithful to heed his word. And I like to just place a tag upon this morning's text, this sermon. What divorce says about our priority? What divorce says about our priority? Why don't you pray with me? Father, we do indeed ask that you would speak to us and that you would ready our hearts, our minds, our eyes and ears to see and to receive your word with joy and gladness today. Father, as you have been moving us through this narrative, there has been hills and valleys, easy things that encourage, hard things that challenge. And this morning, as we come to this text, oh God, I pray that you would just do multiple things within our hearts and our lives. I ask that you would bring conviction of sin, but I ask that you would bring deliverance and freedom, knowing that you promised that there. But now there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would liberate someone, that you would challenge someone, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you have a better way. And Father, in seeing all that, may we see Jesus. So Father, have mercy upon me as I speak, not on my behalf, but yours, so, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, we do pray. And all of God's people said together, Amen. Amen. So, as we jump right into the text this morning, I believe that it would be true, a truthful statement, to say that most all of us here or watching on the live stream has been affected by divorce in some way and knowing that Jesus has uh, had already covered this topic in Matthew the fifth chapter uh, immediately uh, I I had the question of well Jesus why why are you bringing us back to this why through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does Matthew pin this at this point in the narrative why are we talking about this again But then, as I uh, reflected upon the text and the Holy Spirit was just ministering to my heart, remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was laying out for his disciples uh, kingdom living. What, What it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what kingdom living really looked like. And that the standard for kingdom living was completely opposite of the standards of this world. Remember, Jesus, he began to talk about anger, and he says it's not only the, the outburst of anger, but even anger within your heart, you have murdered your brother. So when you fussing and cussing on the inside, right, he's saying that he, he's, he, he's raising the standard of what it means to be a, a, a kingdom-minded Christian. And then he talks about retaliation, that no, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If your enemy strikes you on the, the cheek, turn the other cheek. He's specifically talking about offenses. When someone uh, offends you, the ability to turn the other cheek, he talks about uh, lust and how looking upon a man uh, or a woman in a lustful way, uh, in, in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So Jesus is setting this new paradox, this new standard of what it means to be kingdom focused, to be a Christian whose, whose mind is focused on the kingdom more than this world. So that's in the fifth chapter, see, but here we see the difference right off the back because Jesus is brought into a dispute, an ongoing dispute that has particular cultural implications. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed that Jesus not only has a word for your heart, but he has a word for what's going on around you? The Word of God is authoritative and sufficient enough to speak to our present situations in life, and Jesus is brought into a cultural discussion about uh, this subject. And as the Pharisees bring this question of divorce to Jesus, what Jesus does, though, is quite different because instead of pointing them out, pointing uh, to a specific answer or a specific position, Jesus wants to point them to something greater. Remember in Matthew, the 12th chapter, Jesus is chopping it up with his disciples, and it's on the Sabbath, and they're walking through that field, and his disciples began to—, to pluck the stocks and eat some of that grain, and and, and it seemed like the Pharisees were always always trolling Jesus, always following him around, and they say to him, are your disciples supposed to be doing this on the Sabbath? But what does Jesus say to him? Jesus, he, he lays out for them what the Sabbath is really for, and he says something greater than the temple is here. You're missing it. You're so focused on these rules that you're missing the point that they're pointing to someone and something greater, and Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You coming up with your little rules for your situation. Don't you know I'm greater than all your rules? Jesus in the same way is pointing to something greater. So when we look at this text, in your heart, I pray, I pray, I pray that you don't see this as, oh man, pastor preaching on divorce again. No, I pray that you will see something greater because I believe in this text, this text is less about regulation and more about revelation. Because Jesus wants us to understand where you start from impacts your outcome. And if you start with man, you're going to end up with man-made outcomes. But if you start with Jesus, you're you're going to end up with some divine heavenly outcomes. So Jesus reveals that human traditions and customs will always fall short of his standard. Our big idea is simply, when God is not your greatest priority, your decisions will be divorced from God's purposes. Double entendre on purpose. When God is not your greatest priority, your decisions will be divorced from God's purposes. So Jesus' teaching on divorce, marriage, remarriage, and singleness Is an opportunity for God's glory to shine this morning. So let's look at the glory of Christ. And the first thing I want you to notice is that when God is not your greatest priority, you will always prioritize yourself. In verses one through six, Jesus is transitioning his location, but the ministry stays the same. I like that. The Holy Spirit just gave that. Though the location doesn't change, the ministry stays the same. I don't know where you are in your life. Jesus may be changing your location, but he says, I still got a job for you to continue to do and the location has changed, but he says, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Jesus was still serving the people through his healing ministry to demonstrate who he was, the Son of God, able to free them, to liberate them from their spiritual brokenness and captivity, so they may freely worship, and in the midst of Jesus doing a good thing, here come the Pharisees. And they bring this question to jesus and the text says and, and they brought this question because they wanted to test him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause see immediately upon that text we see that because they don't prioritize jesus they're prioritizing themselves why they are testing jesus because they want jesus to stumble and fall in some type of trap that would bring them back around to being the center of the religious focus. Because right now, Jesus is receiving his well-due glory, but they want to touch his glory. They want his glory. They want the people to put them up on a pedestal. They want want the people in the crowds to to click their likes and to to retweet their tweets. The the people uh, that are there want the glory for themselves, so they continue to try to test Jesus. These are selfish intentions. They're coming to Jesus, and their concern for power has blinded them them to who Jesus really is. Power will consume you. Glory will consume you to the point where you are not looking at Jesus at all, but you are looking at how can I get more? This is where they are, these selfish intentions. And they ask this question specifically, I think, for, for two reasons, but... The, but think back when we look, even look back in Matthew I believe they're trying to get Jesus caught up with Herod because remember John got in trouble with Herod because John spoke boldly and said Herod you done took your brother's wife you went sin Herod didn't like that and he, he 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 jails John and then at this large banquet Eventually, uh, Herodias, because she doesn't like John pointing out her sin, she attacks John by saying, I want his head. I believe that uh, the Pharisees are trying to start some beef between Jesus and Herod to, to maybe possibly get Jesus out of the way, get him out of the scene so they can receive their glory back. But then also, there's this cultural argument that's going on through the day and there's two schools of debate surrounding Moses' instruction for divorce in Deuteronomy the 24th chapter verses 1 through 4 and so quickly as we look at Deuteronomy the 24th chapter this is the piece of text that this whole discussion surrounds itself with Deuteronomy the 24th chapter remember uh, Moses is give, is is giving the law Uh, recounting the law before israel goes into the promised land that they will not forget and in in chapter 24 verses 1 through 4 moses makes this he says when a man takes a wife and marries her if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some that the key word this is the key right here found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The The, the question of the day, and we do this too, well, what does Moses really mean by indecency? And two schools of thought had come through uh a more conservative religious tradition and a more liberal religious tradition. Back then, they had the left and the right. And the, the more conservative tradition would say indecency only means situations of adultery. But the liberal uh, interpretation was that it was, it was more wide. Any situation or circumstance where the husband would not find favor in the wife so on the left, they would actually say, like, if, if, if the wife had burnt dinner, he could divorce her. If, if the wife uh, had started to get a little old and he saw a new hot young thing in his eyes, and he could divorce her. But I love what Jesus, is, Jesus does, right? Because in our cultural questions, we like to act like Jesus is on our side of the question. But so often, Jesus does just like the angel when Joshua comes to him. And Joshua says, Are you on their side or our side? And, but the angel, what does the angel say? The angel says, I'm on the Lord's side. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He says, I'm not taking your side, but I'm going to tell you what thus saith the Lord. What they were pretty much doing is. Not only did they have selfish intentions, they had a selfish interpretation of the Scripture. Because they they were more concerned about for any cause than is it lawful. They were more concerned about what they were able to do or not able to do more than what God had called them to do. Beloved, how often do we come to Jesus with selfish selfish intentions and selfish interpretations? How often do we come to Jesus just merely saying, Lord, uh, please give me a new car, please give me a new house, please give me a new job, and the sole purpose is because you just want to look fresh, you want more space, and you want more money. You're not coming to the Lord saying, Lord, I want to utilize all that you give me for your glory. If if someone needs a ride, I want to be able to take care of them. If someone needs a place to lay their head, I'm going to set them up in an extra room. And if you give me a new job, Lord, I pray it will be a position that I can glorify you. We come to Jesus with our own selfish motives. Lord, give me more so I can do more. We come to Jesus saying, Lord, I need you to fix this problem because I'm tired of it. And we fail to to think about, well, well, what, what is Jesus trying to teach me through this situation? Do I find myself back in this problem because I haven't passed the test yet? Do I find myself in the same situation over and over and over again because I'm trying to get out of it before I'm actually ready? Lord, give me this man, give me this woman, give me this relationship. All the while, Jesus is protecting you from a life of of hell and misery because they don't love Jesus. They just come to church because you ask them to. When you prioritize yourself, you would never look to God as your standard. But this is what Jesus does right here In this next verse, in verse 4, because he says, he answered, have you not read? Have you not looked in your Old Testament scriptures? Have you not read uh, the account of creation in God's blueprint and design for all of creation? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let not man separate Jesus is doing multiple things here and in the first part he is saying don't you know you asking me if this is permissible uh, because Moses said but don't you know that God made man, so in Genesis 127, so God created man in his image, in his image he created him, male and female he created them, and he's saying that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, so because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, let's ask him what he has to say, Let's not go to your homeboy, to your homegirl. Let's not go to Facebook or Twitter. Let's not go to the people down the street. Let, let's go to what thus saith the Lord. God creates all mankind, but then in Genesis two twenty four, 24, when he says, therefore, a man shall leave his... Uh, father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes that here, Genesis 2.24, because he's saying not only did God create humanity, God creates marriage. So if humans wants to know about marriage, then maybe we should ask God. He is recentering the argument to put God in the middle and not man that's the key here that's the key to this text here take yourself out of the middle and put jesus in the middle and now let him recalibrate your entire life you was measuring your life according to humans uh human tradition and customs you need to measure your entire life according to christ But it's interesting, too, because in Jesus just pointing to God as the center, he he sets forth a shockwave in this moment that should impact us today. Because what Jesus just did there was clear up a lot of confusion. Because, namely, what Jesus is saying, He is saying, My Heavenly Father and what He has done is the point of reference for all earthly matters. My Heavenly Father's design for all of creation is immutable, it's unchangeable because He said it, it is. And then Pointing back to the beginning, he starts off, he says, in saying what he says, Jesus points that God's design for gender is immutable. He made them male and female. The world may come up with multiple genders, but God has male and female. And that is not to to, to put down or, or shame anyone, but we have to take man out the center and put God back in the middle of how we judge life. So in affirming that in the beginning he made them male and female, Jesus is affirming gender, but then not only that, Jesus is affirming God's design for sexuality because he says, and the man and the woman shall become one. The man and the woman should be married and become one flesh. So what Jesus is saying is that sexual intimacy is to be between heterosexual individuals within the covenant of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. So Jesus here affirms God's design for marriage. And as Jesus walks through that just that quick, he sets the standard for us on how we approach life, how we should process life, how we should think about life. And as he is doing that, he he concludes by saying, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I'm going to be honest, when when I would read that, I would... I would think about how maybe a person would, 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 would try to uh, do a divorce or maybe somebody outside the family would try to get uh, a marriage to break. But it's actually more profound. What he is saying is not that a divorce is, is, is what separates, but he's saying if, if, if God created marriage, you can't change it. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Humanity cannot change the definition of marriage. God owns that. So when we think about when, when God is not your greatest priority, it's easy to put yourself, your pleasures, your desires in the middle, middle of your life. And what Jesus is doing, he's calling the religious to, to, to prioritize the will of God over and above the will of man. You know, there's a story about this great mathematician who had spent uh, uh, many years of his life solving this unsolvable equation. And as he, he worked on it for Year after year and day after day, he was getting to the point where he think he was just about to solve. He had given the the best years of his life, and now it was almost time for retirement. And and he, he was thinking that he can conclude on a high note. And as he gets to the end, something was off. Something was off. And he began to spend day after day after day after day going back through what was off. And what had happened was, in his early years, he had incorrectly solved one of these equations that every other equation stood upon. So because he got that one equation wrong, all of his other work was wasted. And he had an entire life wasted because he got one equation wrong. Beloved, when we put ourselves at the center of the narrative of our own life, we will waste our lives because we will get it wrong. And what Jesus is saying, when you, begin, when you build the foundation on your life on humanity, your life will come crashing down. When you build your life on what people say you should do, when you build your life on doing what you feel like you want to do, when you build your life around the God of I, your world will, become, will come crashing down and you will look and say, what a waste, because I built my entire life on sinking sand. But Jesus is saying, but if you prioritize God, you don't have to worry about building a life upon sinking sand and what God is saying is the purpose of your life, marriage, job, children may be off right now because you had the wrong starting point. But praise be to God that he is a God of new beginnings. And we can start over in Christ. So when God is not your greatest priority, you will always prioritize yourself. But then secondly, when God is not your greatest priority, you will always prioritize your tradition and this is what happens in verses 7 through 9, because they come to Jesus and says, oh, but then why did Moses' command want to give a certificate of divorce? So going back to Deuteronomy, Moses institutes the certificate of divorce for a number of reasons, but primarily to protect the sanctity of marriage and to protect the woman. Because remember, in that culture, the woman and the children were completely dependent upon the husband's support. And if a man would just willy-nilly divorce his wife, he's just putting her out there. And more harm could come to her. So Moses steps in and says, you need to give her a certificate of divorce that, that this is legit. So she can marry someone else without the rumors, without the, uh, the looks, without being uh, not able to, to fend for herself. But to them, divorce had just become a way of life. It was part of their cultural tradition. It had become, it's just the way we do things here. But how does Jesus stand up against that? Jesus says, it has not, he says, the reason why that came was because of the hardness of your heart. That phrase right there, and this is the hard truth, because what Jesus is saying, he is saying divorce is always the result of sin always now the question may be who's sin who's culpable a lot of times both parties are but sin has gotten in there somewhere to cause this divorce and we, we, we know this because this same language is used of Pharaoh in Exodus when it says and, 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 and Pharaoh harden his heart towards God. So a hardness of heart is saying that I am not going to listen to God. I'm not going to listen to what he his will for my life is and I'm going to do what I want. This is what God this is what Jesus is saying. Because y'all was doing what y'all wanted to do, Moses made a concession to protect your society. And what and what Jesus is revealing is that Divorce is always the ro- result of sin. It's because Adam and Eve sin has found its way into every marriage. Genesis three. Not only was the vertical relationship severed, ruptured, and fractured, but the horizontal relationship between the man and the woman. Jesus knows that sin is permeating and has invaded the the human condition. This is why we need to be redeemed, renewed, and restored. But what Jesus does, he points back to the beginning. He says, but from the beginning, it was not so. He is reestablishing a divine point of reference for their lives. And then he he lays out the, the divine understanding of what should take place. And he says, and I say to you, In verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Unequivocally, Jesus lays out the standard. Unless, except for sexual immorality, except for adultery, except for when one uh, person in the covenant of marriage is committing sexual sin against their spouse. That is a covenant defilement. But even in that covenant defilement, Jesus is not saying what the conservative uh, school would say, that you must divorce your spouse. He's just saying it's permitted. You actually don't have to if genuine forgiveness and genuine repentance is made, is given towards one another. So this is what, what many scholars call the exception clause because it is the only exception for the breaking of the covenant, covenant union of marriage. And what Jesus does in giving this exception clause, he actually answers their, uh, their question for any cause. Jesus is saying, nope, you can't just divorce your husband or wife for any cause. And the reason why I say wife, because in a parallel passage, Mark, the 10th chapter, verses 10 through 12. Mark records the account. And in the house of disciples asked him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So this goes both ways. But when divorce is committed for any other reason, then the one who remarries commits adultery. Now, why do we say that? Jesus does that for clarification. To make sure that this religious folks knows his standards, but then also to point out that if there is a situation where a person has divorced for any other reason besides sexual immorality and remarried to understand that they have committed adultery, and now Jesus' words as as the law uh, serves as a teacher to lead us to Christ and the forgiveness that comes through his shed blood. To let the individual know that I went about this all wrong, to agree with God about how he feels about divorce, but to repent of your sin and to trust him now. Beloved, we've been conditioned to believe divorce is just part of life. It just is what it is. And many, sadly, go into marriage with a backup plan. They They go into marriage with a well, just in case, I'm going to put a little money to the side. Well, just in case, I'm going to keep this secret bank account. Well, just in case, and, they, and we come up with our own reasons to have a backup plan when Jesus is saying, don't come up with a backup plan. One plan, God's plan. Just because something has always been that way doesn't mean it needs to stay that way. Well, you know, grandma and them and daddy and them told me that you need to always keep some money on the side. Just because something has been a certain way doesn't mean it should be a certain way. Because this is a tangent, quick, quick tangent. If the purpose of marriage is oneness and the two become one flesh, Anything that you do that promotes individuality, I'm not talking about your gifting. I'm not talking about your personality. I'm not talking about that you need to just become the same person. I'm talking about anything that you are doing that intentionally creates individuality and not oneness. You are going against the will of God. Anything that you are doing to hinder oneness by saying, this is my thing. That's your money. This is my money. Jesus says it's our money. As a matter of fact, he says it's his money. <laughs> now, you can have a certain way how you divvy it out or whatever, but in marriage, you have to, in marriage, the one flesh union is transform, transforming I, me, and your to we. To we. Because marriage was created by God and for God, any human tradition that attempts to rewrite the rules leads to chaos. Lastly, verses 10 through 12, when God is not your greatest priority, you will always prioritize your position. What does that mean? So in verse 10, it's funny because upon hearing this, the disciples, they like, what? It's, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If, if, if we have to be connected like this with no off ramps, then, then maybe it's just better to stay unmarried, single. And the reason why this catches them off guard is because marriage, marriage was such a hallmark in their society to not marry was unthinkable. So in a sense, in a sense, they're diminishing singleness because it's not marriage. Marriage was this position in life that was idolized over their faithfulness to God. Where marriage became the end thing that everybody did. And they say, if if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. What What Jesus had said to them was just like unthinkable. And like it, it blew their mind. I mean, it's like, it's like walking up in the hood and saying, you know, Beyonce probably is not the best role model for my daughter. But, but folks was like, what? They want to fight. You talk about Beyonce. That's Queen B. Come on now. Nah. I don't think she's a better model than uh, Ruth or uh, Rahab. Mary and Martha... It's like saying the unthinkable, but then notice how Jesus responds. Jesus, he takes their quip about marriage and their demeaning of singleness, and he actually esteems it because he says, not everyone can receive this same, that what you just said, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs, By men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. What Jesus is saying here is that singleness is not a less than life in comparison to marriage, neither one is of greater value of faithfulness because both can be made faithful unto God. What Jesus is talking about a eunuch, he is talking about uh, an individual who who has no sexual organs. Uh, and, uh, their sexual organs had been removed. A, 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 a terrible example, but something I think we can understand is like uh, taking your pet to the clinic and they are spayed or neutered. That's that's what it means. Where there's a life of a life of celibacy, a life where uh, the reproduction of children would not take place. And he's saying some, some people are made eunuchs by birth. It's just happened by birth. And then he says some are made eunuchs by command. So this w- these would be like back in King David and Solomon days, those who, who, took, who kept watch over uh, the concubines, they were made eunuchs in order not to have sexual relationships with the king's wife, but then he says, "But some some eunuchs are by choice," and 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 the key here is to whom it is given. I don't believe he's talking about just a special gift or special anointing, but if you look back in in prior chapters of Matthew, whenever Jesus says to whom it is given, he is talking about the ability of God to open someone's mind to understand. And what he's saying when someone understands the that their singleness can be deeply leveraged for the kingdom of God, let it be so. It is not less than. It is a life of faithfulness. So Jesus here commends singleness, noting that marriage is not the only way for faithfulness. Sam Alberry, in his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, I commend that to you to help all of us But in this book, he says, again, many of our default settings see singleness in terms of deficiency. It is the absence of a good thing. Marriage and the romantic and sexual fulfillment marriage seems to represent. Single people are unmarried, while we would never think of married people as unsingle. It is singleness that seems to be wanting and deficient. The only way to cope with it is if God gives you some special superpower. All of this means we can find ourselves quite out of sync with how Paul describes singleness in the New Testament. He speaks of singleness, not just as being bearable, but as being a gift from God. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all were as I myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. If God has gifted you to be married, then be faithful in your marriage. If God has gifted you to be single, be gifted in your singleness. Whatever situation you find yourself in, be faithful to the Lord. His point is that both marriage and singleness are gifts, As far as Paul's concerned, marriage is a gift, and so so too is singleness. What Jesus actually does by centering God in the middle, he takes marriage out of the middle for many people's lives who have been making marriage an idol, and he puts uh, God back in the middle. So now, when one sees their singleness, they say singleness is not a lesser option. It's not a lesser-than position. Singles are not lepers who need our, the married folks' help and asking them, you, you need to get that fixed. Oh, why haven't you been married by now? Oh, I can hook you up with somebody. Did they ask you to hook them hook up with somebody? Beloved, we really have to be mindful of that posture of seeing singleness as less than and asking questions to make singles feel less than. This is, what, this is why this text is, is about so much more than who can and who can't get divorced. Jesus wants you to see that when he's at the center, your language changes. Your eyes, what you're looking at changes. Where you go changes. When, when, when God is your greatest priority, your entire life changes. Just as marriage is from God, singleness is too, whether temporarily or permanently. Don't prioritize your position in life so much that you miss the will of God. My encouragement here so, if you are married, make Jesus your greatest priority. If you are divorced, make Jesus your greatest priority. If you are remarried, make Jesus your greatest priority. And if you are single, make Jesus your greatest priority. Don't forget, beloved. Divorce and remarriage is not the unforgivable sin. There's one unforgivable sin. The rejection of the Holy Spirit testifying that Jesus is Lord. So praise God that he says if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. So as Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery after everyone was gone, Jesus says, look, where are your accusers? They have gone. Now you do too. Now go and sin no more. Jesus wants to liberate somebody today and say, go and sin no more. Jesus want to free you up so you can give your life to him, so you don't have to worry about the guilt or the shame or feeling less than because you're not married. And he's saying, go and sin no more, but go for my kingdom purposes. Don't go for your own purposes. Well, I just want to be single because I'm trying. I ain't trying to have nobody tell me when I can go out or what club I can go to. I'm trying to stay single because I ain't trying to share my money. He ain't talking about living for yourself. He says, you'll be single to live for the kingdom. And if you marry, live for the kingdom. Beloved, though divorce is possible, it doesn't have to be inevitable. And the Pharisees had become accustomed to their way of life. But in being accustomed to their way of life, they had actually settled for less a less than life. Because what Paul reveals is that in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, Verses 31 and 32, marriage has a particular purpose. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The purpose of a marriage is to reflect Jesus Christ and his love for us. So when people see your marriage— They shouldn't see you and him or you and her. They should actually see kingdom representatives living out what it looks like to lay their lives down for one another. What it looks like to be unified in thought and deed and pursuits. What it look like to consider the other person uh, greater than yourself. Because in Philippians 2, before he gets to that test, he says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That though, that though he was in glory, he did not count uh, uh, being equal with God, something to be grasped, but he laid down his glory. When the two become one flesh, it is about two people laying down their glory that Jesus may get it all. But the only way to enter into the marriage between Jesus and his church is to confess that Jesus is Lord. Because when you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be invited to the marriage land, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when those who have been married to Christ Jesus will sit down and eat with their King. When God is not your greatest priority, your decisions will be divorced from God's purposes. Father, thank you for your word. Though this is a challenging word, this is an encouraging word. That if we replace ourselves from the middle of our lives and you come in, that you will make all things new. Thank you for the forgiveness we have through Christ Jesus. Thank you for the sanctification we have by the power of your Holy Spirit. And thank you that those who have repented of their sin and trusted in you, we have a home in glory awaiting for us. But Father, right now, I pray that you would take away all guilt and shame that is not part of your godly conviction to transform. But Father, I ask that you would do a new thing in our lives. Revitalize and refresh us for your glory and for your name's sake. This we pray. Amen. Beloved, how will you respond to Jesus' words today? Will you respond and